Esther 4, 13b through 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would work within our hearts to change us, to shape us, and to grow us as we study this passage together today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a saying, maybe you've heard, it ain't over until it's over. Growing up, I heard this countless times while playing sports. Baseball was my favorite sport And that saying is famous because of baseball player Yogi Berra. The truth is, we could have witnessed the power of that quote just recently if you turned on Game 4 of the World Series this year as the Rays made a ninth inning comeback to win. But I think the real power, the reason it's so popular, is because we know how easily a team is defeated by losing hope. Have you ever stood on an athletic field facing insurmountable odds? There's nothing quite like the feeling of defeat that washes over us before the game is even over. You don't even have to play sports to know what this feels like. Maybe you're just a Tennessee football fan and you know what it feels like to realize Garantano is starting at quarterback again. For me, it was just a few weeks ago, I was standing on the sideline with the Chucky Doak High School football team, and I was watching this very thing take shape. It was really early in the game, and yet the trend was not encouraging for the guys. I did my best to help keep them in it, but the tug of an impending doom just wiped out their will to play. Why do we lose hope so easily when the outlook seems doomed? What is it in us that makes us want to quit or pout or hang our heads in despair? Whether it's in sports or whether it's in life, we know the power of hope. And what we believe in a a certain moment will determine how we act in those same moments. When a sports team looks at the scoreboard and feels overwhelmed, they tend to quit all too soon. And when we focus on worldly measures of wealth, power, and authority. We can end up nervous, so nervous that we don't even have enough to overcome the odds. What we believe in these moments determines how we act in these moments. And I want to say at the very outset of the message, I want to say that because we're going to see in our passage today, wealth and authority and the reversal that takes place for Esther and Mordecai. And we may think that that's the reason for them overcoming and for the salvation of the Jews. The truth is, and we're going to see this quickly in our text today, that the faith and hope that they possessed was not a result of worldly means, but it had always been a result of God's promise. You see, it's tempting for us to elevate Mordecai and Esther to this place of heroism and awe, thinking of them as some kind of chess master, just executing out this master plan of victory. The reality is they couldn't have managed the details if they tried. And that's why we need this story today. We need to be reminded that it isn't worldly measures 
that result in the reversal. It's actually the hidden king working. And in our story, it was the hidden king working through the trust of Esther and Mordecai to bring about his larger plan. They had hope, not because the scoreboard showed that they had a chance, but because they knew that no matter the circumstance, God was faithful. And when the outlook appears dim, and when we have a tendency to panic, and we could so easily lose faith and hope, we need to be reminded from scripture, it ain't over till it's over. The hidden king is working. And so as we journey through this text today, and we see the ways that God worked in the story of Esther to bring about unbelievable reversals, we're going to be challenged to also trust that he is working among us today. Well, in our text, we had seen that evil Haman had, it seemed as if he had already won, and the Jewish people were doomed, but the hidden king was working and protecting his people. And last week, we ended in chapter 7 with this massive reversal at the end of chapter 7 where Haman was hanged upon the gallows he had built for Mordecai. Esther revealed Haman's evil plan to the king, but because the king's anger against Haman was rooted so much in his love and his protection of Esther, we're going to open chapter 8 with this little bit of this idea that, well, everything's good. The story's over. But as we see, it's a good reminder for us that King A's attitude, he's not really the one who's in charge here. It's the hidden king, and the hidden king isn't finished. So let's jump in in chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Now, the house of Haman is not like some brick ranch on 2nd Street. This was the entire estate of Haman. When a traitor was executed, the Persian law called for their property to, to, to be confiscated by the king. But to give that whole estate to Esther was certainly a gesture of favor and perhaps even the king's way of making good on his offer to give Esther up to half the kingdom. Haman's estate, this was not a small gift. Remember from chapter 3 that Haman had bribed the king with a huge sum of treasure to gain permission to issue the edict against the Jews. Keep going in verse 1. And Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told what he was to her. Now Ahasuerus knew that Esther and Mordecai were Jews, but now Esther is going to let him know that they're also cousins. And the king took off his ring, his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. You see, Mordecai here becomes the second in command as he's given the signet ring from the king. And he's set over the estate of wealth that had been given to Esther. This is a total and complete reversal. And already within the very first two verses, we see an economic and a political shift, a dramatic change. We might think that the very next verse would read, and they all lived happily ever after. We can see from the attitude of King A that he assumes all is well, and he likely thinks that resolution has taken place. 
But the edict of death is still looming over the Jews. And so Esther speaks up. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. In the the peaceful wake of resolution where the king's anger had just been subdued and he had given immense wealth and power to Mordecai and Esther. In this moment, Esther simply cannot shake the burden she feels for her people. Now, she hadn't left the presence of the king, but no doubt it was still a risk for her to speak up in this moment. She had been given a great gift and Mordecai great power. The king had taken care of those right in front of him. But Esther's heart is not selfish. Her motivation wasn't just hope of escaping personal harm. So she speaks up. And the wording here reminds us of the big plot that's going on. This is the first time since chapter 3 that Haman has specifically been identified as the Agagite. Haman's mentioned by name 44 times in the book, but only mentioned as the Agagite four. You might remember when we worked through chapter 3 that we discussed the history of the conflict between the Jews and the Amalekites, tracing it all the way back to King Saul and King Agag, and even further back to when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and they were attacked by the Amalekites. So now, in verse 3, Haman again being identified as an Agagite on purpose so that we again would be mindful of the connection to King Agag and the Amalekites. It's a reminder. This isn't just a little feud between Haman and Mordecai. If that's all that was going on, the rest of the story would story it, it'd feel out of balance and rather extreme. So we need to recapture the context of what God's doing throughout the whole narrative of Scripture as we continue to see how he works. Verse 4. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king And she said, if it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and if I'm, if I'm pleasing in his eyes, she's saying, listen, if you, if you really love me, and if I found favor, would you just grant this request? Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Well, King Ahasuerus couldn't just undo the former edict because it was irrevocable. We learned about the king's edicts all the way back in chapter 1, verse 19. And apparently... The king wasn't super concerned with the fate of the rest of the Jews. We've already seen that his attentiveness as king is lacking, to say the least. The king replies basically, hey, listen, I've eliminated Haman. I've ensured that you're cared for, Esther, but I guess you could write as you please. Look at what he says in verse 8. You may write as you please with regard to the Jews. In the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, this isn't 
super familiar to us. Our political system is one that laws actually can be revoked. But even though this was the way the law worked for the Persians, it wasn't an insurmountable problem. And the king, really, he had no issue at all with Mordecai and Esther writing a contradictory edict, which would then also become irrevocable. So verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at once. At that time, they were summoned, brought together in the third month, the month of, C- of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai had commanded concerning the Jews. Just like the first edict, it was translated and sent to every corner of the kingdom. In fact, there's striking similarity between the wording of these two edicts. Of course, some of that's because it's legal wording, and no doubt the, the, the similarity there is because of that. However, the wording being uh, nearly identical absolutely draws our minds to the reversal that's taking shape between these two edicts. Jump back in in verse 10. And he wrote in the name King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now, only about 70 days had passed since the first edict Haman had issued. And you might recall that Haman had cast lots to determine when the actual day of destruction should take place. Now, that day was still about eight months away. But as Mordecai's new edict is sent out, we're told it's sent with extreme haste. Not just any horses, swift horses that rode out hurriedly. Since the Jews would be responsible for defending themselves, they needed time to raise up a militia. Their protection wasn't going to come from the revoking or the removal of the first edict. It wasn't coming from the Persian army. The Jews needed permission to muster up their own defenses. Otherwise, raising up an army, that would appear like a threat to the empire. So the message was clear and distributed with care of the very best delivery men and the fastest horses in all the kingdom. Anybody who might still plan to attack the Jews, they're going to meet resistance. Think about this. The very decree that Haman issued in an attempt to destroy the Jews was reversed to bring about destruction that God had promised to any enemy of his people God's promise to Abraham would stand. In Genesis 12, 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
The hidden king is at work. Let's keep reading in verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. This pattern of reversals continues. You see, the Jews who had responded to Haman's decree with mourning and weeping and lamentation and fasting in chapter 4, respond to Mordecai's decree with light, happiness, gladness, joy, and honor. At Haman's decree, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion, but at Mordecai's decree, it rejoices. And then we wrap up the last verse. In every province, in every city, wherever the command and edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. It was just earlier in the story where Esther had concealed her Jewishness, but now the reversal has taken place so much so that people proclaimed themselves as Jews. This is a huge turnaround, and we don't really know the motivation for the converts, and there's certainly some doubt as to the sincerity of their conversion. But here's what we do know, that there were people who didn't worship God and that are now ready to acknowledge that he is indeed worthy of worship. The chapter that begins with Esther in tears in verse 3 ends now with the Jews rejoicing and feasting it begins with a people who are under a decree of death, and it ends with a spiritual reversal that sees new converts to a decree of life. You know, ever since the garden, in the fall of Adam, the law of sin and death has been the force in the world, and God's not just going to rescind that. The wages of sin is still death, but just as the king of Persia was not able to simply rescind the first decree of death, God, king of the universe, cannot simply take away the decree of death that was pronounced in the Garden of Eden against humanity. Instead, he issues a counter decree of life. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we so often want God just to vacuum up sin and leave people alone as if it's just some cleanup mission. But that's not a biblical understanding of sin. God doesn't just rescind the decree of death. He actually satisfies it. He satisfy, satisfies this sentence of death in the giving of his son. Our sin wasn't just erased. It was paid for in Christ Jesus. Think about how much confusion and harm results from believing that dealing with sin is just a cleanup effort. Salvation means that people are actually saved from a real sentence of death. And anyone who is without Jesus is under the decree of death. But God put his own son under this decree of death for our sake. And he issued a counter decree of life. This promise of life is available to all who believe. Friends, listen, 
when this sinks in. There's a change in us. Our motivation is different. We need more people like Esther, whose burden for condemned people is greater than anything else in their lives. Wealth and power and prestige and personal safety, that was not enough to eliminate the burden that Esther felt. And what if we allowed that burden in us for condemned people to move us like it did for Esther? You see, Esther's example encourages us to come to God's throne and intercede on behalf of others. Friends, we should fall before the throne and pray fervently for our community, for our county, and for our country. Let's be a church that was, that's doing together all we can do to help people find and follow Jesus. A church that's willing to go, to serve, to share. A church that prays for people. A church that believes that God is working and has good news for all who are under the condemnation of sin. It may look like the enemy is winning. It may feel like the odds are insurmountable. And the temptation might be to hang our heads in despair. But it ain't over till it's over. God is at work. He's on his throne and he will overcome. And we gather each Sunday to proclaim this truth and to rejoice together. God has issued an edict that cannot be undone. Sin is defeated in the cross of Christ. You know the thing that made the difference? It wasn't just the actual writing of the decree or even the distribution to all the provinces in the Persian kingdom. The thing that made the difference was the fact that the Jews believed it. They believed the decree. Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God, may we be people of hope because we believe the decree of life in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would change us right now because we have put our faith and trust in that truth that we have life in Jesus Christ. May we share this with all who might hear being on mission as you have called us to proclaim this good news and that you would accomplish your kingdom work through all that we do together. We pray through Christ. Amen.